The warrant once granted, your will, of course, directed everything. At the time when I should have been in London taking wise counsel and calmly considering the hideous trap in which I had allowed myself to be caught, the booby trap, as your father calls it to the present day, you insisted on my taking you to Monte Carlo, of all revolting places on God's earth, that all day and all night as well you might gamble as long as the casino remained open. As for me, Baccarat having no charms for me, I was left alone outside to myself. You refused to discuss even for five minutes the position to which you and your father had brought me. My business was merely to pay your hotel expenses and your losses. The slightest allusion to the ordeal awaiting me was regarded as a bore. A new brand of champagne that was recommended to us had more interest for you. On our return to London, those of my friends who really desired my welfare implored me to retire abroad and not to face an impossible trial. You imputed mean motives to them for giving such advice and cowardice to me for listening to it. You forced me to stay to brazen it out, if possible, in the box by absurd and silly perjuries. At the end, of course, I was arrested, and your father became the hero of the hour. More, indeed, than the hero of the hour merely. Your family now ranks, strangely enough, with the immortals. For with the grotesqueness of effect that is, as it were, a gothic element in history, and makes Cleo the least serious of all the muses, your father will always live among the kind, pure-minded parents of Sunday school literature. Your place is with the infant Samuel, and in the lowest mire of Malbolge I sit between Gilles de Retz and the Marquis de Sade. Of course I should have got rid of you. I should have shaken you out of my life as a man shakes from his raiment a thing that has stung him. In the most wonderful of all his plays, Aeschylus tells us of the great lord who brings up in his house the lion cub, the Leontos Inin, and loves it because it comes bright-eyed to his call and fawns on him for its food. Pydropos potikaira sinontagastros alankais. And the thing grows up and shows the nature of its race, ethos topros tokeon and destroys the Lord and his house and all that he possesses. I feel that I was such a one as he. But my fault was not that I did not part from you, but that I parted from you far too often. As far as I can make out, I ended my friendship with you every three months regularly, and each time I did so, you managed, by means of entreaties, telegrams, letters, the interposition of your friends, the interposition of mine and the like, to induce me to allow you back. When at the end of March 1893 you left my house at Torquay, I had determined never to speak to you again, or to allow you under any circumstances to be with me. So revolting had been the scene you made the night before your departure. You wrote and telegraphed from Bristol to beg me to forgive you and meet you. Your tutor, who had stayed behind, told me that he thought that at times you were quite irresponsible for what you said and did, and that most, if not all, of the men at Magdalen were of the same opinion. I consented to meet you, and, of course, I forgave you. On the way up to town, you begged me to take you to the Savoy. That was indeed a fatal visit to me. Three months later, in June, we were at Goring. Some of your Oxford friends came to stay from a Saturday to Monday. The morning of the day they went away, you made a scene so dreadful, so distressing, that I told you we must part I remember quite well as we stood on the level croquet ground with the pretty lawn all round us, pointing out to you that we were spoiling each other's lives, that you were absolutely ruining mine, and that I evidently was not making you really happy, 
and that an irrevocable parting and complete separation was the one wise philosophic thing to do. You went sullenly after luncheon, leaving one of your most offensive letters behind with the butler to be handed to me after your departure. Before three days had elapsed, you were telegraphing from London to beg to be forgiven and allowed to return. I had taken the place to please you. I had engaged your own servants at your request. I was always terribly sorry for the hideous temper to which you were really a prey. I was fond of you, so I let you come back and forgave you. Three months later still, in September, new scenes occurred, the occasion of them being my pointing out to you the schoolboy faults of your attempted translation of Salome. You must by this time be a fair enough French scholar to know that the translation was as unworthy of you as an ordinary Oxonian, as it was of the work it sought to render. You did not, of course, know it then, and in one of the violent letters you wrote to me on the point, you said you were under no intellectual obligation of any kind to me. I remember that when I read that statement, I felt that it was really the one true thing you had written to me in the whole course of our friendship. I saw that a less cultivated nature would really have suited you much better. I am not saying this in bitterness at all, but simply as a fact of companionship. Ultimately, the bond of all companionship, whether in marriage or in friendship, is conversation. And conversation must have a common basis. And between two people of widely different culture, the only common basis possible is the lowest level. The trivial in thought and action is charming. I had made it the keystone of a very brilliant philosophy expressed in plays and paradoxes. But the froth and folly of our life grew often very wearisome to me. It was only in the mire that we met, and fascinating, terribly fascinating, though the one topic round which your talk invariably centred was, still, at the end, it became quite monotonous to me. I was often bored to death by it, and accepted it, as I accepted your passion for going to music halls, or your mania for absurd extravagances in eating and drinking, or any other of your, to me, less attractive characteristics, as a thing, that is to say, that one simply had to put up with, a part of the high price one had to pay for knowing you. When after leaving Goring I went to Dinar for a fortnight, you were extremely angry with me for not taking you with me, and before my departure there made some very unpleasant scenes on the subject at the Albemarle Hotel, and sent me some equally unpleasant telegrams to a country house where I was staying for a few days. I told you, I remember, that I thought it was your duty to be with your own people for a little, as you had passed the whole season away from them, but in reality, to be perfectly frank with you, I could not under any circumstances have let you be with me. We had been together nearly twelve weeks. I required rest and freedom from the terrible strain of your companionship. It was necessary for me to be a little by myself. It was intellectually necessary. And so I confess I saw in your letter, from which I have quoted, a very good opportunity for ending the fatal friendship that had sprung up between us, and ending it without bitterness, as I had indeed tried to do on that bright June morning at Goring three months before. It was, however, represented to me, I am bound to say candidly, by one of my own friends, to whom you had gone in your difficulty, that you would be much hurt, perhaps almost humiliated, at having your work sent back to you like a schoolboy's exercise, that I was expecting far too much intellectually from you, and no matter what you wrote or did, you were absolutely and entirely devoted to me. I did not want to be the first to check or discourage you in your beginnings in literature. 
I knew quite well that no translation, unless one done by a poet, could render the colour and cadence of my work in any adequate measure. Devotion seemed to me, seems to me still, a wonderful thing not to be lightly thrown away. So I took the translation, and you, back. Exactly three months later, after a series of scenes culminating in one more than usually revolting, when you came one Monday evening to my rooms, accompanied by two of your friends, I found myself actually flying abroad next morning to escape from you, giving my family some absurd reason for my sudden departure, and leaving a false address with my servant, for fear you might follow me by the next train. And I remember that afternoon, as I was in the railway carriage, whirling up to Paris, thinking into what an impossible, terrible, utterly wrong state my life had got, when I, a man of worldwide reputation, was actually forced to run away from England in order to try to get rid of a friendship that was entirely destructive of everything fine in me, either from the intellectual or ethical point of view. The person from whom I was flying, being no terrible creature sprung from sewer or mire into modern life, with whom I had entangled my days, but you, yourself, a young man of my own social rank and position, who had been at my own college at Oxford, and was an incessant guest at my house. The usual telegrams of entreating and remorse followed. I disregarded them. Finally, you threatened that unless I consented to meet you, you would under no circumstances consent to proceed to Egypt. I had myself, with your knowledge and concurrence, begged your mother to send you to Egypt, away from England, as you were wrecking your life in London. I knew that if you did not go, it would be a terrible disappointment to her, and for her sake I did meet you, and under the influence of great emotion, which even you cannot have forgotten, I forgave the past, though I said nothing at all about the future. On my return to London next day, I remember sitting in my room and sadly and seriously trying to make up my mind whether or not you really were what you seemed to me to be, so full of terrible defects, so utterly ruinous both to yourself and others, so fatal a one to know even, or to be with. For a whole week I thought about it and wondered if, after all, I was not unjust and mistaken in my estimate of you. At the end of the week a letter from your mother was handed in. It expressed to the full every feeling I myself had about you. In it she spoke of your blind, exaggerated vanity which made you despise your home and treat your elder brother, that candidissima anima, as a philistine of your temper, which made her afraid to speak to you about your life, the life she felt she knew you were leading, about your conduct in money matters, so distressing to her in more ways than one, of the degeneration and change that had taken place in you. She saw, of course, that heredity had burdened you with a terrible legacy, and frankly admitted it, admitted it with terror. He is the one of my children who has inherited the fatal Douglas temperament, she wrote of you. At the end, she stated that she felt bound to declare that your friendship with me, in her opinion, had so intensified your vanity that it became the source of all your faults and earnestly begged me not to meet you abroad. I wrote to her at once in reply and told her that I agreed entirely with every word she had said. I added much more. I went as far as I could possibly go. I told her that the origin of our friendship was you, in your undergraduate days at Oxford, coming to beg me to help you in very serious trouble of a very particular character. I told her that your life had been continually in the same manner troubled. 
The reason of your going to Belgium you had placed to the fault of your companion in that journey, and your mother had reproached me with having introduced you to him. I replaced the fault on the right shoulders, on yours. I assured her at the end that I had not the smallest intention of meeting you abroad, and begged her to try to keep you there, either as an honorary attaché, if that were possible, or to learn modern languages, if it were not, or for any reason she chose, at least during two or three years, and for your sake, as well as for mine. In the meantime, you were writing to me by every post from Egypt. I took not the smallest notice of any of your communications. I read them and tore them up. I had quite settled to have no more to do with you. My mind was made up, and I gladly devoted myself to the art whose progress I had allowed you to interrupt. At the end of three months, your mother, with that unfortunate weakness of will that characterises her, and that in the tragedy of my life has been an element no less fatal than your father's violence, actually writes to me herself. I had no doubt, of course, at your instigation, tells me that you are extremely anxious to hear from me, and in order that I should have no excuse for not communicating with you, sends me your address in Athens, which, of course, I knew perfectly well. I confess I was absolutely astounded at her letter. I could not understand how, after what she had written to me in December, and what I in answer had written to her, she could in any way try to repair or renew my unfortunate friendship with you. I acknowledged her letter, of course, and again urged her to try to get you connected with some embassy abroad, so as to prevent your returning to England. But I did not write to you, or take any more notice of your telegrams than I did before your mother had written to me. Finally, you actually telegraphed to my wife, begging her to use her influence with me to get me to write to you. Our friendship had always been a source of distress to her, not merely because she had never liked you personally, but because she saw how your continual companionship altered me, and not for the better. Still, just as she has always been most gracious and hospitable to you, she could not bear the idea of my being in any way unkind, for so it seemed to her, to any of my friends. She thought, knew indeed, that it was a thing alien to my character. At her request... I did communicate with you. I remember the wording of my telegram quite well. I said that time healed every wound, but that for many months to come I would neither write to you nor see you. You started without delay for Paris, sending me passionate telegrams on the road to beg me to see you once at any rate. I declined. You arrived in Paris late on a Saturday night and found a brief letter from me waiting for you at your hotel, stating that I would not see you. Next morning I received in Tite Street a telegram of some ten or eleven pages in length from you. You stated in it that no matter what you had done to me, you could not believe that I would absolutely decline to see you. You reminded me that for the sake of seeing me even for one hour, you had travelled six days and nights across Europe without stopping once on the way. You made what was, I must admit, a most pathetic appeal, and ended with what seemed to me a threat of suicide and one not thinly veiled. You had yourself often told me how many of your race there had been who had stained their hands in their own blood, your uncle certainly, your grandfather possibly, among others in the mad, bad line from which you came. Pity, 
my old affection for you, regard for your mother, to whom your death under such dreadful circumstances would have been a blow almost too great for her to bear, the horror of the idea that so young a life, and one that amidst all its ugly faults, had still promise of beauty in it, should come to so revolting an end, merely humanity itself, all these, if excuses be necessary, must serve as my excuse for consenting to accord you one last interview. When I arrived in Paris, your tears breaking out again and again all through the evening and falling over your cheeks like rain as we sat at dinner first at Voisin, at supper at Paillard afterwards, the unfeigned joy you evinced at seeing me, holding my hand whenever you could as though you were a gentle and penitent child, your contrition so simple and sincere at the moment, made me consent to renew our friendship. Two days after we had returned to London, your father saw you having luncheon with me at the Café Royal, joined my table, drank of my wine, and that afternoon, through a letter addressed to you, began his first attack on me. It may be strange, but I had once again, I will not say the chance, but the duty of separating from you forced upon me. I need hardly remind you that I refer to your conduct to me at Brighton from October the 10th to the 13th, 1894. Three years is a long time for you to go back, but we who live in prison, and in whose lives there is no event but sorrow, have to measure time by throbs of pain and the record of bitter moments. We have nothing else to think of. Suffering, curious as it may sound to you, is the means by which we exist, because it is the only means by which we become conscious of existing. And the remembrance of suffering in the past is necessary to us as the warrant, the evidence of our continued identity. Between myself and the memory of joy lies a gulf no less deep than that between myself and joy in its actuality. Had our life together been as the world fancied it to be, one simply of pleasure, profligacy and laughter, I would not be able to recall a single passage in it. It is because it was full of moments and days tragic, bitter, sinister in their warnings, dull or dreadful in their monotonous scenes and unseemly violences, that I can see or hear each separate incident in its detail, can indeed see or hear little else. So much in this place do men live by pain, that my friendship with you, in the way through which I am forced to remember it, appears to me always as a prelude consonant with those varying modes of anguish which each day I have to realise, nay more, to necessitate them even, as though my life, whatever it had seemed to myself and others, had all the while been a real symphony of sorrow, passing through its rhythmically linked movements to its certain resolution, with that inevitableness that in art characterizes the treatment of every great theme.